Hello, everyone, and welcome to Success Shorts. I'm Merle Chanel. Today, we're joined by Roger Hobby. Roger has had a distinguished career in the financial services industry and currently serves as the Executive Vice President of Private Wealth Management at Fidelity Investments. Roger's also one of those people that you could sit down with and speak to on a whole host of topics and leave with some new insight that really makes you think. Today, we get into purpose and how once you identify it, you can align with it and act with intention, which is really empowering. So I hope you enjoy our time with Roger Hobby. Let's go. Roger, it's a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to kind of kick things off because of what I know about you and where some of your reputation has led. I want to explore relationships with you right off the bat. I'd like to kind of do that within the scope of this kind of wild COVID period that we're just emerging from, it seems. How do you feel this past year or so has not only shown the importance of relationships, but also reframed how we build relationships moving forward? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think many people have enjoyed some time to themselves and build that relationship with themselves. Uh, but it's also just highlighted the fact that we're social creatures and wanting to you know, have connections with and be engaged with the people that you have or you want to build relationships with is a big part of who we are. Interesting, I've, I've spoken to a number of our associates and people that I work with that have got family that have been home. And there's also a little bit of a too much of a relationship, too much time as well. So it's I think it's highlighted the sort of the dichotomy of the importance of human interactions, the human relationships, but you can't have too much or, and, you, and you certainly can't have too little. That's really about balance. And we've definitely become skewed over the past year or so when you think about the amount of time we're with family and not having those other inputs. I know me personally, I've been working from home this whole time and a lot of the friends that I would get together with, you know, they kind of shut down and went into their own little worlds too during this period. So it's really been just me interacting with my kids. And I've noticed things about myself that have changed, I think, because of that too. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that sticks and how much of it reverts back to the more communal component once everyone's kind of comfortable and starts to re-engage a little more. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to dig into your story a little bit. You know, the first time I really came to know of you, a really good friend that I went to college with and worked at Fidelity with, uh, Sean Vallier, who joined you at Fidelity's family office kind of way back. Um, and I promise he only had nice things to say about you. That's very nice. He's <laughs> lying, but that's very nice. Huh? <laughs> but you've had this reputation because you've been leading these organizations that really kind of pride themselves on culture and purpose and acting with intention and really fostering deep relationships that are, even though they're business related, they're still genuine and real. So I'm wondering, what trait have you really leaned on to flourish in this space? And when did you realize that you had this trait in you and how did you kind of cultivate that early on? <laughs> you are very kind. I think you're giving me too much credit. I learned early on that if you have the right people in the organization and you make sure that you're all sort of focused on the common goal and, and making sure that there is a, a true north as to what you're trying to accomplish, the more voice you can give your organization, the more empowerment, the more co-creation that you can give them, uh, the better. I got to go to this executive sort of offsite and there was a consultant that came up there that talked about this equation. And he said, QI 
times C equals P. And his point was the quality of the idea is important. That's the, that's the starting part of the equation. But the multiplier is the commitment. And then that equals the performance of the organization. And so he kind of said, you really need to focus on the multiplier because anything that you can do to decrease commitment is bad. Anything that you do to increase commitment is going to help be a multiplier. And a lot of the times people focus on the quality of the idea. Some organization will have an idea. Someone will be empowered and excited about it. And the next thing you know, um, a leader is trying to make the idea better. And I think if you think about an idea becoming better, uh, that's great. But what does it do to the commitment of the people that actually thought through it? You want to make sure that you're not destroying the commitment and the ownership of the idea. And so that's where this concept of being aligned and, and empowered at the same time is, uh, is very powerful. And it really was the thing that I've really embraced. And it creates a very collaborative culture where people really own what it is that we're doing and feel a sense of purpose and sort of a, a mission and a vocation around the task that we've been asked to deal with. You've hit on a lot of interesting points that can be applied by pretty much anyone listening. But I want to flip it back to you. Uh, hierarchy kind of comes under a lot of scrutiny for whatever reason. And it definitely has some negative connotations. But at the same time, it's also very necessary, especially in organizations. So how can companies or even individuals think about how they can shift away from hierarchical structures and embrace less top-down leadership models? Hierarchies, it's a difficult thing to, to talk about because we need to make sure that we're taking the right hill. We need to make sure that we have a vision. We need to make sure that, we, that, we're, that we're pointed in the right direction and that we're making the investments now that will pay off 10, 20 years from now. So I'm not saying that we don't have to have people that are, that are leading us and, and, are, and are making sure that we're you know, skating to where the puck is headed. It's the next level down from that, that once we understand what hill we, we want to take, that's where hierarchy tends to be a problem because it's hard. It's a lot easier to lead with hierarchy. Just tell people what to do and have them kind of go do it. It's a lot harder to get them to want to go do the right thing. And it's even more difficult to not necessarily be completely tied into what you think the right thing is. I call it version of right-itis. If you think that your version of right is the only version of right that's out there, and your team gets empowered and they're having success, but it's not exactly what you want, you have to release that. You have to have a sort of a, a tight, loose grip on that. You want to make sure that you've got an idea that you're thinking about, but you want to hold it loosely so that you can let the organization evolve. And it goes back to that commitment. What you're really trying to do is to make sure that it is the right hill. We are headed in the right direction. But then you want the commitment of the people that are, that are doing it, not doing it because they're told to do it, but doing it because they want to do it. And my experience has been the more involvement that you can have with the team, the more you listen, the more you share context, the more you are open, you know, kind of take a beginner's mind type of an approach to, to those things and, and try to not show up with that ego around what that version of right actually is. It can be a little scary sometimes because you don't necessarily know where it's going to go. But it, at the end of the day, it's tremendously empowering because you've really dialed up that C part of that equation and, and the commitment. As you're saying that, I think about the space that you're in, wealth management. That's where you've, you've been for quite some time. And I think about, <laughs> you're saying, you know, the, the version of right-itis or some of the more hierarchical thinking where it's basically, I'm going to tell you what to do or expect you to do it. I think that's a lot of, when people look at 
financial planning and some of these concepts that are associated with wealth management, you're going to a person to basically have them tell you what to do. But what you just explained there to me, where you're leading them along on a path and helping them understand that, you know what, this is something that we should want to do together, that we're, we're going to lead each other along around this through a relationship of vulnerability and understanding and with a set goal in mind. That's what I couldn't help but think of as you were saying that in a lot of ways. Do you feel like this mindset transcends, transcends into uh, what we're trying to accomplish at Fidelity when it comes to wealth management? I do. I mean, um, I'm very fortunate. I've got a number of people that I started my career with that are advisors in, in my organization, and I ended up taking a different track. But their vocation, their calling, their mission was to serve clients and to be helpful, to be an advisor. And so when you get the opportunity to be a part of the leadership of that organization, you're really doing peer leadership. And so you don't necessarily ever want to tell those people what to do. What you want to do is have a collaborative conversation around what needs to be done and, and how it kind of could be done. And then you kind of break and you play your role in the leadership position that you're in. They play their role with what they're doing. But it's a virtuous cycle around what, what kind of needs to be done. As it relates to our clients, the dichotomy of wealth management in a lot of the cases is our clients don't know what they don't know. And so it's strange, but client could come in and you could kind of say, like, how can I help? You know, what do you need? And if you expect them to know everything that's out there or even understand the complete nature of the, the opportunity or the, the challenges that they're dealing with, you're probably selling the situation a little short. And so a big part of what we're doing in wealth management isn't telling people what to do, but it's kind of helping them understand how things interrelate. And a lot of it is introducing concepts in a way where we're not telling them what to do, but we're kind of pointing out things and helping them know stuff that maybe they didn't know before and then, or, and then relating it to their situation, but always done through the lens of being helpful. At the end of the day, we're not selling help. The idea of selling help means that some people might not know they need the help, but because you're an advisor and an expert, you can kind of see that they could use a little bit of help. In some cases, they don't even know that, that they need it. And so you have to get them to a point where they're sort of open and receptive to receiving the help and, and the advice. And so it's not ever about telling the people that I work with what to do. And it's usually not telling our clients what to do. No, actually, nobody really likes to be told what to do. But it's about helping either our advisors or our clients kind of think about what needs to be done. And for our advisors, in some cases, because they know as much as I do about this business, it's a very collaborative approach. And for our clients, there's a lot of context and a lot of education and a lot of building credibility to a point where we then can demonstrate our credibility through some of the ideas that we might have that we're introducing that to sort of tap into that sort of unknown component of, of, um, of what they don't know. Kind of building off of that, you know, it's, it's about that partnership and maybe even going back to that that word that you used earlier, that co-creation in some ways. When you think about just investing in general, which most people can do or engage in on their own versus being brought into this world of wealth management, you know, what are some of the differences in practices and philosophies between like the, just the standard investing and actually working with a wealth manager? Like, What is the value that that adds? I'll try to answer the question, but I'll, uh, and I may not do a very good job of it, but <laughs> in, in some cases, someone would say, this, this would feel more like an investing question to me. Um, 
I have $50,000 and I want to have it saved for retirement and my retirement's in 20 years and my risk tolerance is X, Y, and Z. What should I invest my money in? Kind of a relatively straightforward thing. So when it comes to saving for retirement or saving for college or some relatively specific goal that's kind of time boxed out there, the solution can be linear and can be kind of obvious around what we could or should invest in based on historical performance of things that kind of go forward. Wealth management is thinking about sort of the combination of all of those things. And then you layer on top of that, that in some cases, a lot of the people that we're dealing with have enough wealth where they're really not saving for a thing anymore. They're managing their wealth and they're thinking intergenerationally about the wealth that that they have. And as a result of which, you've got now a multi-goal as well as a multi-account some cases, multi-generational approach to things. And so you end up having this mash together of investment planning and financial planning and estate planning, as well as family intergenerational wealth transfer planning that is far more holistic as opposed to I have this amount of money against this particular goal. And so wealth management and a primary wealth advisor understands the breadth of that relationship and then can talk to the specifics, but at the same time always takes opens the aperture, takes it back to a broader conversation around um, you know their wealth and how it's all interrelated. And there's investment planning, estate planning, financial planning, and then and then family governance planning. And then there's you know, investment implementation and the implementation of the relationship and the implementation of these capabilities that is sort of an ongoing type of a cycle. But that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of the difference between the two from just plain old investing versus sort of managing the complexity of associated with you know, significant wealth. Oh, it, it does answer the question. And one thing that just kind of popped to mind as I was listening to you speak there was really wealth planning is it's fluid to address anything that may come up. Whereas the investing component that we were talking about just then was a little bit more myopic. You're, you're solving for a specific goal or need. Is there a certain level or is there a benefit to actually looking at, regardless of amount of wealth that you might have, is there a benefit of looking at things through the more holistic lens versus just looking for a specific goal orientation? I think it's a it's a luxury of wealth. I mean, so okay. the, at the first level, it's about paying off debt. So it's pretty simple. Like, do I either save money or do I pay off debt? At the next level, once you've paid off debt, now you've got some very specific things like college, like retirement, like maybe, you know, houses, whatever it is, where, like I said, it's a very discreet thing that you're doing. Then once you get to the to the next level where a lot of those things are kind of cared for, and now you've got additional investments, or how does all of that work together? Or where do I put my next dollar? So it's not so much dollars as much as it is complexity, but those two are somewhat correlated as it relates to the complexity associated with somebody that has a number of moving parts. If somebody has $50,000 and that's what they have and they want to save it for something, you know, we probably could go through the Mavlov hierarchy of need and sort of say, well, should we pay off debt? Should we save for college? Should we save for retirement or some combination thereof? It's when it starts to get into millions of dollars and you know, multiple accounts and a lot of goals are already cared for. Now it's a function of managing holistically more, more of the wealth. So it's probably more of a complexity. But like I said, I think complexity and wealth are pretty good proxies for each other. Oh, understood. That makes sense. I think there's some things that you can take from the mindset of wealth management and apply it to the less complex situations where as you're trying to build good practices and 
good habits around what you should be doing next. And I think that you laid some of those out from something as simple as, okay, here's one goal. What's the next goal? That's adding a layer of complexity to it. And what are the behaviors or some things that we need to do around that? And you can pull some of those fundamental principles from wealth management and apply it to it. No, you're right. I think the big difference and it's why what we've done, what we've done in personal investments is the capabilities that we have are called Fidelity Wealth Services. And the reason why they're called Fidelity Wealth Services is because it's not simple as a product. It's an integration of a planning experience with our clients that then leads to you know, some sort of a, an implementation of that plan, which usually leads to some sort of an investment uh, type of a product. But it's not just lead with the product. It's lead with planning. It's make sure that we have a plan. T- to our previous point, sometimes the plan is relatively simple relative to the uh, what we're trying to accomplish. And sometimes it's very complex. Mm-hmm. But the idea of Fidelity Wealth Services it, and, and why Fidelity Personal Investments is making this pivot more towards being in the wealth management business, we're fully in the wealth management business, is because the value that is created and the value that is needed from our clients is planning. They, they need help. They need, I go back to my point. They're, they don't know what they don't know. And so they turn to us for for that help. And not only can we help them with the things that they are immediately asking for, but we can help connect other dots that maybe they didn't know. And then once the plan is done, then you move into implementation, which feels more like investing or a particular product. Yeah. So I'd I'd like to get back into relationships for just a minute. Um, Because when you think about relationships between an, an advisor and a client, or I guess any professional relationship, you know, there's a level of transactional expectation that needs to be overcome before there can be a personal relationship created there. So I'm just wondering from your experience, what is it that sets apart like that next level from going from getting over the fact that, okay, I'm working with someone who is in the financial industry to I'm working with someone who is a planner for my, my financial well-being. Yeah. So I think you're talking about sort of the move to primacy and how do you go from being, you know, a player in, in somebody's life to being sort of a primary mm-hmm. advisor in their life. And it, it's definitely an arc. It was a fascinating book. Stephen Covey wrote called The Speed of Trust, which I steal from all the time because it, it talks about sort of a model that is created around building trust. And, you know, character and competence are a couple of the, the pillars in there. And it's really hard to demonstrate character in a relatively short period of time. You can say that you're a nice person and have great <laughs> character. But it's, it's easier to demonstrate competence. And so I think what we're really trying to do is to build credibility, build critical mass of credibility, and then be there in a position where we're starting to do some of the thinking for the client. So I think the three critical factors for me as it relates to you know primacy is that we've got to a point in time with a client where we've built that critical mass of credibility, where they know that we're, we're able to be helpful and they don't think that there's an ulterior motive. I think number two is um, that we're not a solution in search of a problem. We're, we're trying to be helpful regardless of where the help actually is. And that's where leading with planning and leading holistically uh, makes sense. And then the third measure is sort of how the client grades us. And the two best measures to sort of grade them are it's like, are they entrusting us with data? Are they entrusting us with documents? Are, they, are we the place that's reviewing holistic you know, estate planning, financial planning, wills, trust, things of that nature? Are they consolidating assets with us because they want their advisor to be the keeper of their assets and assets are both, you know, financial instruments as well as data and information. And um, when you've made that pivot, it's fundamentally different. Our advisors will talk about clients that 
or their primary for where they get phone calls to talk to them about things that really have nothing to do with their fidelity relationship, but they want to talk it through. I had a conversation with one of our clients who was thinking about, you know, buying a horse for her daughter and they could afford the horse. But it was really this sort of concept where he had to get his head around because he grew up with modest means. He's like, I can't believe I'm thinking about buying a horse for my daughter. I just need to talk to somebody about this because it just feels wrong. <laughs> like, it, feels, <laughs> it feels it feels like that's something a rich person would do. And I kind of had to kind of go, well, you kind of are a rich person. And we walked through some of the, the specifics of maybe how to talk to the daughter so that it doesn't feel like it's an empowered kind of a thing. But when you're having those types of conversations with clients, you know you're in that position of them turning to you for competence as well as character, and you're, you're in a primary type of a, of a role. But it, it takes time, and it's one of those precious gifts that you can lose relatively quickly if, if they start to think that the interests that you have in helping them aren't aligned so it's one of those things that you have to stay on top of all the time. It's not like you have it, you check the box and you move on. It's one of those things. It's a precious thing that you have to keep kind of holding on to. It's a relationship. Yeah. The word relationship almost gets trivialized a little bit in some ways, just in, in general. Like we throw it around so liberally, but when you actually think about what a good relationship is and you, anal and you analyze the components of it, it's pretty darn significant. Agreed. And, I mean, you have vulnerability, you have intention, you have the credibility component that you were speaking about. So to begin to kind of wrap things up, I do want to stick on this critical mass of credibility comment that you made, because that really resonated for me. And credibility is like a really tough thing. And especially when we think about the financial industry, because there's some people who, you know, they have implicit trust in in the stock market. They understand what's going on. Like they, they know the inner workings and they're comfortable with it. It is credible to them. Yet there's a whole nother group of people that the financial industry doesn't have that credibility for them. They don't necessarily have the financial literacy or the acumen and they don't just, that trust isn't there. So I'm curious, what do you think are some of the things that need to continue to happen to bring more people along? in their own financial story, in their own investing story, so that they can start to see the financial services industry as credible and have that trust that a lot of people do. And in doing so, that would unlock their ability to start to amass their own wealth. And this is really a question for anyone, no matter where they're starting from. Yeah, I think you have to be an educated consumer uh, and be able to sort of um, ask the right questions around the motivations of people and why they're doing what they're doing from a financial services point of view. But, and so I think that's probably the most important thing is becoming an educated consumer and not worrying about asking tough questions about fees or how people are compensated or how things work and why they're aligned and why it makes sense and what are the other options. And again, a, a relationship at the beginning doesn't have a lot of trust baked into it. You know, it's, it's, it's at its genesis. And so you have to build that trust. But one of the best ways to do that is to be transparent and honest and open and you know express all of your questions and make sure that you're getting you know the right answers it's why the regulators have done the department of labor laws the best interest standard laws and it's one of the main reasons if not the main reason why i work for this firm i mean we're called fidelity so it's yeah. a wonderful term and it comes from the top from the johnson family abby now our chairman we we, we always put our clients first we don't put profits first. We don't put products first. We put our clients in first, and every decision is made through that lens. And so when we 
hear people talk about sort of best interest standard and some of these other things, candidly, we scratch our heads sometimes. I do anyway, and kind of think like, well, that's just the way we do it. That's the way we've always done it. But, you know, the industry itself doesn't always operate that way, but it doesn't operate that way because somebody's doing something wrong. It's just a different business model. And so that's where um, if you just think all business models are the same, that's naive. So you have to be the educated consumer asking people that are you know, operating, are they operating in a fiduciary standard or not? What does it mean to operate in a fiduciary standard? What does it mean to operate in a best interest standard? There's a lot of education that has to happen in the process. And I, I go back to in a lot of the cases when we're selling help, we're trying to explain why fidelity, but we're not trying to juxtapose why fidelity versus some competitor because that's not fair. We're trying to highlight how we make decisions. And then we're trying to use a number of examples around how we make decisions and why they're in the best interest of, of, of our clients and how we leverage technology to then deliver those things in the most scalable, efficient, and effective way possible. But it's hard if you're a consumer out there because people look at financial services and they kind of go, oh, how do I start this process? And I would say just start it by asking smart questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. If it doesn't make sense, ask somebody to explain it. Get into it. Talk about how they're compensated. Talk about how all of these things work. Why does it make sense? What are my options out there? And if the firm can't answer those questions, that's kind of a red flag. We love answering those questions because um, it allows us to highlight what it is that we do well. I really like the way that you frame that because it wasn't looking at it through the lens of anything that had to actually do with investing, had to actually do with the business model. It's about the culture. And for one, knowing yourself as a potential consumer, what's important to you and trying to find the company that has like-minded values. Because all the different financial services companies are very different. Some yeah. are public, some are private, some are more trading oriented, some are more advice oriented. It's really about what are you looking for in that? And once you know what you're looking for, asking the right questions to kind of see, are you aligning yourself in that right space? So, Roger, this was a lot of fun. We kind of went into some different areas that I didn't expect to. And I really like your insight in that last question for those who are starting out, trying to create that feeling that they are working with the right credible partner for them. I really appreciate the way you answer that. So this was a lot of fun. And thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate you uh, asking me to do it, and I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. And that's all we have for this episode of Success Shorts. Hopefully you found today's topic useful, and remember, have fun, stay curious, and keep it short. Mm -hmm.